Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are working our way through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, today we're in chapter 5. You know, a while ago I was just waking up. It was before the alarm had actually gone off. And, you know, kind of in that almost awake kind of feel, I could feel like the energy of somebody like staring at me. Has that ever happened? You can kind of feel that. And I woke up, I opened my eyes, and it was my wife. <clears throat> and she's like staring at me with these, these like sad, disappointed eyes, right? And so I'm like looking at her, and she's looking at me, and she says, how could you? And then she proceeds to like spin, wrap the blanket around her and pull them off of me. And I'm like, how could I what? I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm panicking. I'm like, did I forget her birthday? Is it her birthday? Did I forget an anniversary? What did I forget? Did I not take out the trash? What is it? And I said, honey, what are you talking about? What did I do? And she rolled back over and she said, you left me. And I said, what are you talking about left? What do you, what do you mean? She said, in my dream last night, you left me. <laughs> if you're married and that hasn't happened to you, it will. It will. <clears throat> and I said, dreams don't count, babe. That, that doesn't count. And uh, she's like, well, it felt real to me, you know. And later she found the grace uh, to forgive me that night. <clears throat> So I was thankful, but no, we laughed about it. It's funny, right? That's not a real sin, right? That, that's just a, a dream. Uh, but like, what do we do when something like that happens like in the real world? Like, what do we do as a church when there is blatant sin happening uh, with people who are partners of your church? Like, what are you supposed to do and how is the church supposed to deal with it? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes a pretty... Uh, uh, abrupt shift in the letter of what he's talking about. And he dives right into a specific problem that the church in Corinth was actually dealing with or essentially not dealing with. And he kind of outlines for us how we are supposed to deal with it uh, today. And so in verse one of chapter five, we're gonna jump right into it and see what his encouragement is. And so he starts with this. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Woo, okay, hello. Why didn't I give this week to Pastor Taylor or he, you know, just kidding. So what's happening here? Well, there is a public, known, blatant sin taking place within a couple in the church, and the church is not doing anything about it. A man is in a sexual relationship with his uh, father's wife, so essentially his stepmother. 
And so technically incest, this is taking place. And Paul is saying, hey, look, not even the pagans of the world think this situation is okay. How in the world are you as a church actually saying uh, that it's okay and you're not actually dealing with it? And so he's pretty upset about this. And even Jewish law and Greek law uh, forbid this kind of relationship. And so uh, Paul is making this statement to say that, look, you have to deal with this appropriately. And so how do we do this? It was a public sin. Man was still involved in the church. A lot of commentators believe that he was most likely a leader in the church, which would, kind of made it a little bit more difficult for, for the church to actually do something. And, uh, but not, by not dealing with it, the church is a sim- essentially accepting this sin as okay. And so when you allow it, when you don't condemn it, it means that you are essentially accepting it. And so, again, this is not about preference. It's not about, oh, like, <clears throat> like, you know, my opinion about this might be kind of here and you might kind of look at it like this. And so it's kind of a secondary issue. No, this is, this is a clear-cut sin. He's having sex with his stepmother, right? Everybody knew about it. They weren't sorry. They weren't repentant. It was blatant disobedience. And so Paul is saying that this response is shameful. And in verse two, he says, you guys are being arrogant about it. Verse six, he says, you're boasting about this. And so they're, they're boasting not about his sin, but they're arrogant and boasting because they were overlooking the sin because of who he was. His name isn't given, but what kind of a person would a church be proud of, like, to be a part of their church? It's not a trick question. Uh, you, you would be proud or you, you might be a little uh, arrogant if, if somebody who was famous or somebody who was very well known in the you know, community was like a, a part of our church. Let me go extreme here. Like for us in this area, let's just say Peyton Manning was a member of Foothills Church. I mean, some of you dudes would go to work tomorrow and be like, yeah, I went to church yesterday. Well, you know, Peyton goes to my church, you know, right? You can kind of see how there would be a little arrogance there in, in that. And maybe sports aren't your thing. Maybe it's a famous singer or something like if Justin Bieber was like a partner here. Be like, yeah, Biebs comes to FC. Just, that's where I go. I didn't know if you knew that. But you can kind of see how that happens. So you get a famous, wealthy, well-known person in the church. The other people in the church are kind of like, yeah, that's kind of cool. He goes to the same church as I do. So the problem is, imagine the scenario. So this popular, you know, well-liked person, famous person in your church, but they're in a sexually immoral relationship, right? And, and, and now what are you supposed to do? Like, we like this person. We're glad, you know, they're a part of our church, but they're in this sin, we all know about it. Now you can kind of feel the tension that the church was actually experiencing and dealing with at this point. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we guilty of the same thing? Would, would we overlook someone's sin because of who or what they are? Who he is, who she is. And the truth is it happens a lot in the Christian church. In fact, I don't know if you're, you know, keeping up with Southern Baptist like life around the country or not, most likely not. But there's a lot of kind of tension happening because over the last 20, 25 years, there have been, you know, some 
Southern Baptist churches where people in that church reported some type of abuse and the people in that church did not handle it appropriately. They didn't fire the guy. They didn't deal with the issue. They didn't deal with the sin. They just kind of covered it up and just kind of, you know, pretended like it wasn't there and they just wanted it to go away. Well, years later, as these people who have been abused continually, you know, are, are fighting this, now it's kind of come out and now it's kind of a big issue and, and appropriately so, right? Appropriately so because a church according to what scripture calls and just according to the justice that is within my heart and, 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 and should be every church, that when abuse is actually reported, the church has to deal with it. This has to be a safe place for kids. It has to be a safe place for women. And so we can't just not deal with it or ignore it. It is, it is a, a, a major offense, right? And, and, and so a lot of these churches are, are, are dealing with this right now and kind of the SBC kind of world is getting thrown under the bus. What, what you may not know is unlike like Catholic churches who have a hierarchy of like um, priests and leadership and they are over and have authority over all uh, Catholic churches, um, maybe even like a, you know, the Presbyterian denomination, they have a hierarchy of all these churches. That's not how it is in Southern Baptist churches. Every Southern Baptist Church is an autonomous church, which means we are self-governed. And so the SBC doesn't have authority over us. They can't tell us what to do or not to do, whatever. Essentially, SBC churches, what we do is we just cooperate financially to send missionaries uh, all over the world. We cooperate and we do have a, a theological framework that we um, all agree with, but essentially there's no authority. And so that's kind of how it got, gets complicated. But when it comes to, what Paul is talking about here, like every church has to govern and has to deal with issues that might come into play. And so at this point, again, we go back to the question, do we overlook sin because of who the person is? They're a pastor or they're this, or you know, they're well-known or they're popular or, or, or what have you. And so instead, what the church must do in these types of situations is the church must provide intentional accountability. So this is what Paul is 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 teaching us to do, like intentional accountability. He doesn't say pray over this man, counsel this man, send him on a retreat center, no. He says to hand this man, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Wow, <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Well, the word flesh there doesn't mean hand him over to Satan so Satan can kill him, like physically his flesh. It the flesh essentially means his stubborn, hard heart. So what he's saying is this person has not submitted himself to the leadership of the church or the pastors or his spiritual leaders. He's not repentant. He's not submitting to a plan of forgiveness or restoration. So because he's unwilling to deal with this and he's unwilling to humble himself under the authority of God's church or the scriptures, then deliver him out of the church. Let him out of its church, disfellowship him. Essentially, this is called um, church discipline. And so remove him as a member from your church. This is messy. Again, why we call this series messy. Listen, when a spiritual leader in your life says what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is sinful, harmful, and your response is, I don't care what you say, that is a scary place to be in, and it's why Paul uses such harsh language here. 
We all need to heed to this. Church discipline is kind of a scary word. We don't talk about it often. We don't, we don't think about this. And, you know, if your marriage is hanging by a thread today or you're suffering in some way, you probably didn't wake up this morning and say, man, I hope Trent preaches on church discipline today. It's really going to hit me right where it can. You know, that's not what you said, most likely. But at the same time, all Scripture is God-breathed and inspired and useful and helpful in correcting and leading our life, right? And so no matter what we're suffering with today, no matter what we're going through, the truth is the Word of God has something to speak into our life today to help guide us as we take our next step, whatever that next step is for you. But church discipline is a way that we care for each other and hold each other accountable, We're able to help each other see the bondage that sin and stubbornness has over a person. And I'm susceptible to this and you are susceptible to this. No matter where we're at spiritually today, you might be super close to Jesus today, but nobody is is prone to wonder as the old hymn uh, says. Nobody is exempt from this idea that we could be prone to wonder Like all of us have that within us because sin still is creeping at the door in all of our lives. And so we need this in our life. We need the framework of what the church provides in the care of church discipline. And the goal of this is not finger pointing or shaming. The goal is restoration. It's healing. It's ultimately in verse five, so that his spirit may be saved. So that his spirit may be saved. So the goal is that you and I would be saved from our sin, that ultimately our souls would be saved. Because when sin blinds you so badly that you won't listen to the people who love you and are called to be your spiritual leaders, then telling them to leave the church is essentially, Paul says, their last hope to save their soul. So that's a big deal. Let's keep going here in verse six. Here's what he says next. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I thought about titling the message, Becoming a New Lump. Didn't quite have the, you know, the vibe I was going for. But as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What in the world is he talking about? If you're a baker, if you bake bread, maybe you get this, but I am not, I don't get it. What essentially he's saying is if you don't remove the blatant sin in your church, it's going to spoil the work of God through your church. And so in the Bible, leaven equals sin. Right? And so if you're a baker, you know that if you put a little leaven, you put a, that yeast essentially into the dough, it's going to permeate the entire lump of dough and it's going to cause it to rise and expand. And he's saying, this is what sin does in a church. A little bit of sin that is accepted in the church then infects the entire group. Now think about this for a minute. Our culture is a very, very individualistic society. In America, it's popular to believe that you need to make decisions that are good for you. You be you, you make decisions that are good for you. I'm not your judge. I'm not gonna get involved in that, right? We're a very individualistic type of culture. People say, it's none of my business what you do as long as you're not 
hurting somebody, right? Love whoever you want to love, have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. I'm not your judge. Very individualistic mentality. We're focused on three things, I think, right now. These are the top three things that's been written about, lots of books about this. But one of the top things that our culture is concerned about today, number one, personal happiness. What makes me happy is my business. And I can do whatever I want to do if I think it's going to make me happy. And so very individualistic, that's the focus. Secondly, we're very focused right now on feelings. So if you're doing something that makes me feel uncomfortable, then you are wrong. You are immoral if it makes me feel a certain way, right? So personal happiness, feelings, decisions based on feelings. If you're feeling weird, if I'm feeling weird, you're wrong. Don't make me feel weird or bad or about something. And so finally, interfering with someone's happiness is seen as immoral. That's why the church today is looked at from culture as, as, as the, the culture views themselves as morally high and, and, and morally superior than the church because of these issues, right? And so if I'm making decisions and, and I'm saying you're wrong if you're interfering with my happiness, then we are so far away from the gospel and scripture that, that we're completely dizzy and we don't know what's up and we don't know what's down and there's so much confusion in culture and world, right? About morality. So the problem though is that a lot of this thinking permeates Christians and as Christians we bring this concept and idea into the church. Even as I say this, personal happiness, feeling, some of you, it strikes a chord in your heart and you're like, yeah, I kind of agree with that. That's kind of that's how me and my friends make decisions. That's kind of how we think. And I've got some friends that do this and this. I'm not going to judge them. They need to do what makes them happy. And so we, we do, if we were honest, we allow the world to kind of come into the church. And Paul's point in this whole passage is don't let that happen. We've got to rid the church of the world and begin to think as scripture teaches us to think and to act. And so when we read scripture, and for some of you, this might be the first time you actually have read chapter five or have actually heard a message on this. You're like, wait a minute. Maybe this man and his stepmother really loved each other. What if that's what made them happy? What if they finally found in each other their special someone? Who am I to tell them they can't love each other, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think, I think there's a lot of harm in this. Number one, Paul says it's harming the family of God. Because when a little sin enters the family of God, it permeates and infects and hurts and divides, right? See, this is what we don't realize about sin. It affects everything. And so for us, they're hurting the children that are involved in this situation, right? They're confused about morality. They're confused about what God wants or who God is. They're hurt by being, you know, raised in this kind of environment because it impacts their theology and their morality. It impacts the actual people in the relationship. They think it's helping and wonderful, but essentially because this is what scripture says, right? 
because of what sin does to us, it spiritually is disobeying God, which means it is hurting you. It is hurting you, I think, physically, but I think it also hurts you emotionally and it most definitely hurts you spiritually because you're not walking in God's will for your life. And he's saying it's gonna lead to the destruction of your soul. And so Paul would say here, you're a member of God's church and Christ died for you. And you are called to community. Our culture says live individualistically. Jesus says you were created for relationship and you were created to be in relationships with a community of believers that you commit to, they commit to you to walk out the great commission, to walk out the great commandment and to do life with. And so as Christians, this is what we are called to. You were bought with a price when you came to faith in Jesus, right? You became a child of God. That means God is your father. You became a part of his family. You're a part of the bride of Christ. We call it the church. And that means what you do impacts me and my family. And what I do impacts you and your family. And how the world views the church is gonna be based on how you and I interact with each other. And we live in a, we are living our life according to scripture, not according to popular opinion or feelings. The scripture is not concerned about your feelings. The scripture is concerned with showing you who God is and what he deserves and how you're supposed to live your life in order to worship him. And if you have faith in Jesus, we'll be able to see and begin to have life to the fullest. And one day when we leave this world, then we'll go to heaven and be with him. That's what scripture is pointing us to. It's not pointing you to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's pointing you to die to self, lift up the name of Jesus and live for him. Too much of the world's mentality permeates the Christian mind. Remember that sin is the enemy, not people. So the posture of a church or church leadership is always reconciliation when someone is dealing with sin. It's not a gotcha approach. Oh, we caught you, you're in trouble, telling. It's not, turn or burn, you're all going to hell. This, that, You know, you hear that all the time. That's not helpful. In verse seven, he gives us the picture of the Passover feast. And for a Jewish family, the Passover feast, they were, they were told to get rid of any leaven in their home. They had to get rid of all of it. And they did that symbolically because it showed that, hey, we want our, our household to be rid of all sin. And so in verse seven, he says, you really are unleavened. He says, you really are a new lump, <laughs> right? What he means is when you came to faith in Jesus, that leaven was removed, you were forgiven. You're a brand new creation is what he is saying. Second Corinthians five seventeen. all things have pa passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so because we're a new creation, we're to listen to spiritual leaders in our life and heed their warnings. In verse seven, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ was sacrificed on the cross so that God's wrath would pass over you and I on all those who would believe in his name. But listen to this, if we continue to accept sin and practice sin in our life, we are showing 
by our actions that we do not believe in his name. And that's when we talk about like the destruction of our soul is so important because how you're living and behaving really points to what you actually believe. And if we are not believing in his name, then as a church, we've got to care for each other and help each other because sin blinds. Stubborn, hard-hearted hearts lead us away from the truth and lead us into dark places. In verse eight, he tells us to celebrate the festival, to celebrate this idea that we have been forgiven through Jesus and that we have overcome our sin. He has forgiven us of that sin. And that means that as Christians and as a Christian church, we're called to pursue righteousness and help each other pursue that righteousness, right? This is where it gets messy because Christians are really, really bad at this. On one side, we're super judgmental and self-righteous and ah, I just hate that type of, you know, situation, right? I won't say people, situation. (laughs) But on the other side, you have this accommodationist mentality where, oh, we were just all people and we're all just welcome here and everybody can just come in. We're all just the same and can't distinguish between the world and the church. And it's like, that's not it either. Relationships are the key. Relationships are the key. You know, we hear people say, why would you call somebody out like this? Just let them, let them do their thing. Why would you call them out? And I would say, accountability is not calling somebody out, it's calling them in. It's calling them into real relationship. It's calling them into real faith. It's calling them into real gospel-centered community in life. I'm not pointing my finger or judging anyone. I'm coming into it as one beggar coming to another beggar saying, bro, I might be in your same situation one day in my life. So I'm not judging. I'm just saying what I see or what I heard or what's happening here could be damaging your eternity. Is there something I can do to help? And then it's up to them. It's up to them. Relationships are key. The passage doesn't give us a license to lash out at all Christians. Like, don't go home and get on Facebook and say, oh, I'm going to turn you over to Satan. Church down the road. No. In relationships, our church, our spiritual leaders, our small groups, we hold each other accountable. We don't hold churches down the road accountable or somebody on the other side of the world. Like, that's not my job. I'm called to pastor and be the spiritual leader of the people who are members of this church. Right? We call them partners. And so that's, that's the group of people he's specifically talking to us about. He keeps going here in verse nine. Let's go. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, we're talking about holding each other accountable within the relationship of church membership. And of course, people in the world are going to be living in sin. 
He's saying, I'm not asking you to like not hang out with the sinners of the world because then you, you would never be able to separate yourself. They're, they're everywhere, right? You'd have to leave the world to get away from them. So he's not saying separate yourself from the entire world. He's saying that the role is that as, as church members, as church partners, we are saying we want this accountability in our life. And so he's giving the church a clear directive that we are to hold church partners accountable. We have a lot of people that attend our church and people coming in and out and traveling and all this kind of stuff. Like church attenders are plentiful. And where it gets a little kooky is that people who attend, you know, a church maybe once or twice a year, they might say that, well, that church is my church. But then they might be living with whoever and doing whatever. And then people in the community say, well, that guy goes to that church. and Look how he's living. It's like, well, he's not really a member of our church, just an attender. And so it gets really weird and kooky. And I'm not like knocking on people's doors and, hey, who are you living with? And what's going on in here? And like, that's not the deal, right? That's not what he's calling us to. But he's calling us as followers of Jesus to say, I need this in my life. And I'm saying it for myself. Like I have a coach in my life. I have elders in my life who have the freedom to say, hey, watch this. Don't, you know, if you get out of line here or you're thinking here or this is happening here, I need that in my life. And the truth is every one of us need that in our life. And nobody thinks they need it until they fall off the wagon. And so every single one of us um, as church partners and members are saying, I want this in my life, but so many Christians get this backwards. Paul says, don't judge the world. Spend time holding each other accountable. And so many Christians get this backward. We spend time judging the world and blasting the world and then ignore the sin that is inside the walls of the church. This happens on the regular. Christians uh, give themselves a pass. Why they have hard you know, stances and conversations on social media or even publicly about how wrong certain lifestyles are and they hate this thing and they hate that and they hate this part of the country and blah, blah, all, all this kind of hatred coming out. Paul's like, listen, you're, you know, you're calling a spade a spade here. Like if I'm in the lake this afternoon and you say, hey, Trent, you're, you're in the water. Yeah, I know, I'm in the water. I mean, if you're gonna look to the world and say, hey, you're, you're not living like we think you should live. They're gonna go, I don't care what you think. I get it, whatever. And so we've got it backwards and we've got to get it back into line where he says, look, we're called to love the world. We're called to, to, to be different from the world, but to be in the world. He calls us citizens of heaven, but he also calls us citizens of the United States of America. We have a, a dual citizenship. We're called to be ministers of reconciliation, right? We know how someone can be reconciled to God through Jesus. We know the gospel. And so we are called to persuade this world that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the immorality that you think you're having fun with. Jesus is better then whatever sin you think is incredible right now, eventually you're gonna hit a wall, it's gonna hurt, the pain is gonna happen, right? Jesus is better. 
And so we're called to persuade the world, not judge the world. And the judgment or the accountability that we're called to give is to one another, to help each other. This is how we care for each other. This is how we love each other. So many Christians talk a big game about how they love Jesus, right? But literally, most of their vocabulary is is filled with hate against the world. And if you really press them, and this is a challenge for you, how many of you who call yourself a Christian actually love someone who isn't a Christian? How many of us would say that I genuinely love a person? I'm in a relationship with a person, not like a you know, sexual relationship. I'm just talking like a friend or a person. I love someone who is not a believer. And when I have these conversations, I, sometimes I see like deer in the headlights at this point because so many Christians just don't. They, they don't love someone genuinely who doesn't know Jesus. Now, how are we gonna persuade people that Jesus is better if they don't know and experience a relationship, number one, from us, but secondly, feel genuinely cared for by us? That's on us. See, some people just wanna be separatists. They wanna separate themselves and remove themselves from the world, right? They judge the world. So I don't want to be a part of it, remove themselves. This is where monasticism comes into play. You've got all these nunneries and, and uh, monks that would go to the monastery. But the problem with you know, being a separatist is that if you go into this community that's supposed to be holy and righteous, you're just taking your sin into that community and it's still filled with messiness. And then, as I said, you've got the accommodationists who would just welcome people who were living a lifestyle of sin into the fellowship or membership of a church. And that's not the answer either. Paul's point is that both are wrong. Stop judging the world. Stop holding the world accountable to biblical truth and start holding your brothers and sisters accountable. This is what we are called to do. And so final application here um, is important, I think, like, the importance of church partnership. The reason why all of this can take place is because Paul is writing to a group of people in the city of Corinth who have said, we are going to be members of this community of believers. And so therefore, what that means is you are committing to do life with them. You're committed to building the kingdom of God, loving your neighbor. You're committed to the great commission together. You're gonna help each other grow in faith. And, and, and do life with each other and minister to one another as you do ministry in the community. And so that's why he can say, okay, you've got a brother in your midst who's in sin, he's not repentant. If he's not willing to walk through this path of reconciliation, then you're just gonna have to remove him from the church. And so then we come to this idea, you see every single one of us needs a church, a local church, real church, like real people, not just you know, watching online is great, but you need to be in relationships with a church. You cannot be in God's will if you're not connected to a church. And unfortunately, you're not really connected if there's not consistency in showing up. You, you're not really connected if there's not like a relationship with the people that are, that are here. If you're not serving, if you're not trying to build relationships with people, 
then there's no like, there's no like bond there. And so we've got to understand that this is the kind of growth that God is calling us to saying, yeah, I'm going to commit to a local church. If, if this isn't the church God would, would have you commit to, then I would encourage you to go somewhere where he, he would. That's how much I think you need it. I know I need it. Some people, when it comes to church, are like the couple that doesn't want to get married. They just want all the benefits of marriage. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of people attend church and they want all the benefits of being a church member. They want my spiritual leadership. They want pastors and, and leaders to care for them and to care for their kids and to care for their students and to provide opportunities and minister. And if something you know, difficult happens in their life, they want that care and love and support. And all. They, they want all the benefits of like the commitment, but they don't wanna give the commitment. And so part of our spiritual growth, like if you've been here for a while, we talk about hard things here. This is not a comfortable like passage of scripture, <laughs> but it's so needed and helpful for our spiritual growth. And that's why I think it's important for you to grasp today. You see, every single one of us as followers of Jesus, we need accountability from a local church. I need it. Every single one of you need it. We need accountability as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another. If there's nobody on the other side of you sharpening that blade, then most likely it's dull. We all need account accountability in our life. But then secondly, you need support from a local church. You need people that are gonna come alongside of you, pray for you. You need people to come alongside of you and encourage you. You need people to come alongside of you and just hang out and have fun and enjoy life. Your life is most likely stressful. Your marriage most likely has issues. Your children most likely have issues because that's life, it is messy. And every single one of us need support from other believers who maybe have been there or they've done that, or they just, they just offer a hug or a high five or a prayer that encourages you and blesses you. You need accountability, you need support. But then finally, thirdly, you are needed to provide that accountability and support to a local church. So it's not just one-sided. It's like you get support, you get accountability, which you need, which is gonna bless you. And then at the same time, you're, you're offering that accountability and that care and that love and that support to other people. And you need to do both. And if we're not doing both, then we're out of balance in our spiritual lives. And I get it, we get, we get busy and we get focused and we get you know, sideways and we've got, but like we, we, we only live one life. We get one chance, we get one shot. We gotta make it count. We gotta make this life count. So no matter where you've been or what you've done, you can take the right step today. And maybe if you are a church partner here and, and you, would, you would say, yeah, I went to base camp and I committed, but Trent, honestly, oh, I haven't really been fulfilling that commitment. Then today would be kind of that, you know, loving kind of nudge to say, come on, man, you got this. You got this, you need this. This is the spiritual growth that God is calling you to. You can't do it alone. You can't do it by yourself. 
You need, this is how God created us to be in relationships, a community of believers. But then secondly, some of you maybe have never been to base camp and you've never made that commitment. And, and maybe for you, the, the loving encouragement and challenge is yes, it is time for you to take that step. It is time for you to say, yes, I'm going to commit to a church. I'm going to commit and submit myself to other leaders and, 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 and be in this community because this is what God obviously is calling me to. It's part of all of our spiritual growth. And the good news is July, base camp starts again. Camp two is in July as well. And if you scan the QR code in front of you or you go to our website, you can register for that. I think the next base camp is July the 10th. What a great way to begin to spend your summer as fall and everything with school kicks back off that God would use this year like never before. That God would do things in your heart and your marriage and your family like never before. Because here's the reality. Why do I say this? Why do I preach hard things? Why do we talk about this? Because it's important and valuable to God. But then secondly, here's what I know. God wants to do more in your life than what you're allowing him to do. God, God wants to do more and, and, and God knows he can do more, but there are some barriers in your life that are preventing you from fully embracing what he's calling you to do. If you would just humble yourself, if you would just take the steps that God would call you to take, then you would begin to impact people and help people and you would experience the blessing that God wants you to experience this year like maybe you've never experienced before. Don't miss your chance. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for 1 Corinthians chapter five and the, and the difficulty of what we read. But at the same time, the warning God that you you share us here and the, the care of how the local church helps each other is so valuable and important. And Lord, we recognize that each and every one of us struggles with something, Lord. And we know, God, that we need your grace and your love every step of the way. And so would you minister to us today, speak truth into our life today. As we close with this song, God, and and we sing that, that we would make room in our heart. Our prayer is that, that we would invite you in, that we would experience your love and that we would do the, 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 the things, sometimes difficult things that you're calling us to do. So Father, we praise you and we love you. And we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like the video and leave a comment. And we also encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss a post from Foothills Church. To learn more about FC, just head to our website by going to foothillschurch.com or by clicking the link in the description below.